Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just a moment, I'm going to be reading the latter part of that third chapter in the first six verses of chapter 4. While you're turning, I just want to be a little bit informal and and uh, express my gratitude for seeing the Richardsons today. Um, this dear family seated up in front are presently without a husband and a father who's in Bryan Station, Texas. The Richardsons are moving. We're grateful for their fellowship with us for these few weeks. Please give Irv our warmest greetings. Um, it's Susan and Ben and Courtney and David. So we're we're glad that they're here. Second thing I want to mention is Jonathan is in the air, God willing, unless he's already landed in Chicago very soon. Diane will be leaving to pick him up in Evansville around 1 o'clock. So we're grateful for safe travels thus far and look forward to some reports about his mission to India. And then just... Um, Lastly, I'd like to uh, request your prayers for me because in a um, little less than three hours, I am to do a funeral at Glen Funeral Home. Um, this request came to me just uh, late Friday night, and I do not know the family. I have met the daughter of the deceased, and my general understanding is that the family at large is unconverted. And so I'm going to try to bring the gospel in a way that's clear and not needlessly offensive. If the gospel is offensive, so be it, but I need grace to be loving and kind, tender, compassionate in the presentation of it. Please pray for me. That funeral's at 2 o'clock. Now, last Lord's Day morning, we were wonderfully challenged by our brother Mark to be not only the salt of the earth, but the light of the world. And that challenge was, I believe, convicting to all of us. And one of the things that stands out in my mind with regard to Mark's message was the point that salt must have contact with the meat if it's going to have any preserving influence. Light must have contact with the darkness. And Mark, by the help of God, touched our consciences, I believe, last Lord's Day, with whether or not we are actually having deliberate, intentional, decisive, strategic contact with unbelievers. And may God continue to convict our hearts in that regard. But the thought occurred to me this week, how is it that we have become the light of the world? Jesus simply started with the assertion, you are the salt of the earth, you are, not you ought to be, you are the salt, you are the light. How did we become the light of the world? What happened? 
And that is what I want to answer in this morning's message, especially from the text to which I have turned you. But I would like to give just a little background and begin, as I directed you, to chapter 3 and verse 12. And as we look at this, I want you to notice in these last few verses that two things were veiled. And then as I come into chapter 4, you'll see that a third thing is veiled. See if you can easily identify what was veiled. Verse 12, chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. It's uncertain exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind. Some believe that Moses veiled his face also so that they wouldn't see the gradual fading of the shining that was on his face because it was embryonic. It was, it was representative of the glory of the old covenant coming to an end. To be superseded by a better covenant, the covenant that we are a part of. And that in a sense, Moses was apologetic about the fading glory, possibly. And if that be the case, then the Apostle Paul is saying, we're not embarrassed about any fading glory because the gospel has come to tell us about one whose glory cannot fade, about a covenant's glory that can never go away. That's possibly what Paul meant when he said that he covered his face with a veil so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But it's also very likely that he covered his face so that the Israelites would not be so fearful. Now I continue. Verse 14. But there minds, whose minds? The Israelites. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, the day when Paul is writing, first century, to this day when they, who's they? The Israelites, the Jewish people. When they read the Old Covenant, that is the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, and perhaps especially the, the book of Exodus and Leviticus, because there we find so much of the content of the covenant that God established with Israel and how He was to be worshipped. When they read those portions of Scripture, or when they heard them read, says the Apostle Paul, that same veil remains unlifted. Because... Only through Christ is it taken away. And then as if he had not adequately emphasized it enough, he comes again in verse 15 and says, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, speaking, of course, especially of the first five books, a veil lies over their hearts. Now, if I stopped right now to give you a quiz and said, Name the two things so far that have been veiled. Surely you would all say, well, Moses' face was veiled. 
Yes, that's right. And according to the end of verse 15, their hearts were veiled. They didn't want to see the shining face of Moses. But they especially didn't want to see the light of the message that was coming from God through Moses. And so they veiled their own hearts. Now they put a veil over their own hearts. Now notice verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, we Christians, apostles included, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that is, into the image of Christ. It's a, it's a gradual, progressive transformation. It's not the point of my message, but I'm just going to say this. True Christians have seen the glory of the Lord. God the Holy Spirit through the gospel has opened their eyes so that they could see beauty in Christ. And seeing Him, they can quit looking at Him. And they just continue through the Scriptures to look upon His glorious image. And says the Apostle, gradually, by the grace of God, as they look upon the image of Christ, they themselves are being changed into the moral image of Jesus Christ by degree, by gradation, from glory to glory. That's happening in the lives of every true Christian. So I'll just pause long enough to say, if you're... Life is not being transformed by your fixation upon the beauty of Christ in some measure so that you can look back on your Christian experience and say, yes, I am being transformed. If that's not happening, you've never seen the glory of Christ and you are not yet a Christian. Because that happens wherever a person has, by God's grace, come to see the beauty of Christ. And the end of the verse says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now we go right into chapter 4, which of course the Apostle Paul never divided this. And he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And here's where I really want to draw your attention. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case. That is in the case of those who are perishing. The God of this world, small g, this is the devil. This is the only place where he's actually called the God of this world. And another place, or technically, actually, it's the God of this age, this, this period of time. There is this age and the age to come. The God of this age is the devil. In another, in another place, he's called the prince of this age. What is he doing? He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And what's his goal? Why? Why? If we could just stop the devil and say, hey, why are you trying to blind the minds of unbelievers? And if you could get a liar to tell you the truth, 
he would have to say this. I don't want them to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Because if they ever see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, they will be transfixed. Their eyes will gaze upon Him, not only for the rest of time, but for all eternity. And they will see beauty in Him. And they will experience gradual transformation into His image. I don't want them to see that. I don't want them to see beauty in Christ. My whole goal is to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they won't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's my honest answer if the devil could ever tell the truth. And then Paul just pauses to say, by the way, you need to remember what our ministry is all about in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants. Let's get this straight. It's not about us. We're just servants. Our whole lives are dedicated to proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And then he comes back to this whole issue of blindness. And he says, for, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When was that set? The dawn of creation. Let there be light. The God who said, as it, if, it, if you will, let there be light. And now he describes the experience of himself and the Christians to whom he's writing. He says, this is, this is what has happened to us. The same God of creation who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now let me draw that back to my introduction. I said Mark preached a great sermon about how we are the light of the world. And I'm simply raising the question this morning, how do you become the light of the world? And the simple answer is by God shining in your heart. If you experience this, this gracious, regenerating, creative work of God to whereby the power of His Spirit through the Scriptures. He banishes the power of the devil who has, up to that point, blinded your mind and removes the scales and enables you to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That light that you have seen becomes a part of you You'll never be the same. And from that day forward, you are the light of the world because you have seen light. The psalmist said, in your light, we see light. And Jesus says, we become light. So, I'm, I've, I've sort of cut to the chase that now I'm going to demonstrate that and prove. Now you know where we're going. Now, all I want to do... By the way, did you see the third thing that was veiled? Final part of the quiz. Name the three things that Paul says were veiled. Number one, Moses' face. Number two, the Israelites' hearts. Number three, the gospel. But as we look at this, I'm going to submit to you that really what's veiled 
In one sense, you could say the gospel is veiled. There's the gospel. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It proclaims a wonderful Savior called Jesus Christ. And we see no beauty in it. It seems like it's all covered up and draped over with something. But in fact, what's really covered up is our minds. The devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see. The problem's not with the gospel. The gospel's brilliant. It's glorious. The problem is we don't have a faculty to see it. And the devil himself, according to this passage, is very active and very involved in keeping our minds darkened to the beauty of the gospel. So really, in a sense, even though Paul says the gospel is veiled, I think as he goes on to explain what he means, he's helping us understand that really our, our eyes, the eyes of our understanding, are veiled and darkened. So those are the three things. Now, as we look, especially in chapter 4, and especially at verses 3, 4, and 6, I'm just going to leave the little parentheses out in my treatment. The parentheses is verse 5, where Paul says, by the way, it's all about Christ. We're not preaching ourselves. We're just servants. But I want to focus on verses 3 and 4, because what 3 and 4 show us is what I'm going to call our fearful condition by nature. And then I want to focus for a moment our attention on verse 6, which I believe sets forth our happy consolation by grace. What were we by nature? We were in a fearful condition. What have we become by grace? We have come into a very happy, happy consolation. So let me just open that up for you real quickly and very briefly. There are four or five things that I think describe our fearful um, condition. Now let's look at the passage together. Uh, See if this isn't the order. Right here in verse 3 and verse 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Two things already. Number one, the gospel is veiled. That's, that's fearful. No beauty can be seen in it. And number two, the reason is because our minds have been blinded. Two problems. Veiled gospel, blinded minds. And then we go just a little bit further and we're told what explains our blinded minds. It is verse 4, in their case, that would be us before we are converted. The God of this world, that's the devil, small g as I've already said, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But I skipped something else. That's three things. Veiled gospel, blinded minds, active devil. And notice this word perishing. Perishing. That's a horrible word. Perishing is a horrible word. Perishing is when you're in a plane at 35,000, 40,000 feet and 
Something terrible happens and it goes into a tailspin and a nosedive and it's falling to the ground at hundreds of miles of an hour and there's no possible way to avert this. And you know what's going to happen. You are perishing. Perishing is when you're in the Twin Towers and the floors begin to collapse one on top of another so fast that the whole thing goes down in 20 seconds. You are perishing. Perishing is when the ship is sinking and there are no lifeboats and no lifeguard or life rafts and life jackets and you're out in the water and you're struggling and you've gone down once and you've gone down a second time and you can't, you can't swim any longer. You're perishing. Perishing is when you're in a building on fire and you can't get out and the whole thing's collapsing down and you're suffocating from smoke inhalation and you're being burned. Perishing is when you're dying of cancer and you only have a few breaths left. That's what perishing is. That's the word the Apostle Paul used. How fearful is our condition by nature? Veiled gospel, blinded minds, active devil, perishing, and prevailing unbelief. Because he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel seems to be veiled, but in fact your mind is blinded. Because there's an active devil and you are perishing in unbelief. Just put it all together. How's that sound? Don't you see why I have to describe this as our fearful condition by nature? That's what all of us were. That's what some of you still are. And some of you listening to me just now need to stop and say, is that me or not? And I'm going to tell you again that if you haven't yet come to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, that's your fearful condition. And I'm trying to help you understand how bad it really is. The gospel is all covered up. Your mind is blinded. The devil is active in your life. You are perishing. In your unbelief. What hope is there? Is there any consolation for such a condition? And the answer, of course, is yes. And that's what we find in verse 6. And I'm jumping right right into the, the consolation. The consolation just means comfort. Console someone. I went to the funeral home yesterday and tried to console some of the members of the family. And I want to console them today with the gospel. To console is to offer comfort and hope. What is our consolation? Well, the gracious consolation is found in verse 6, where Paul says, For God who said, that is the Creator God, and really, if you study the doctrine of creation carefully, you will find out that all three persons were involved in the sovereign initiative of creation, but we often think of God the Father. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown 
in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's the consolation. And he's, he's writing to Christians. He's helping them understand what they once were and what they have become and how they became what they were. And that brings me back to the purpose of this message. We are the light of the world. How did we become the light of the world? We were once nothing but darkness. The answer is, the God who said, let there be light, said that to our souls. For all of you who are Christians in this room or in the overflow room behind me, That is exactly what happened. There came a point in time in your life. You may not be able to nail it down with certainty and say, well, it was on such and such a date at such and such an hour. Most of us can't, but we can go back to the general period of our life and we can say, I remember when I was blind. And now I see, and it was roughly at that point in time when God, as it were, came to my benighted soul And through His Word and the message about Christ and by His Spirit, He said to me, He said to my soul, let there be light. And light burst upon my soul and the blindness went away and the power of Satan to keep me blinded was gone and I saw Jesus Christ. I took the The exhortation of John the Baptist, I beheld the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and what a sight it was to see Him. How beautiful He was to me. He before didn't make sense. There was no beauty in Christ. I cared nothing. I saw something, but I couldn't really see anything beautiful. I was like the Israelites of old. They saw the face of Moses. I was talking to Larry, about that this morning. You know, it really must have been sort of scary. Have you ever seen someone's face that shined supernaturally? I'm not talking about a happy countenance. We we see that in people and we see the joy of the Lord. And sometimes we're quite certain that we're looking at the face of a Christian sometimes because there's such a countenance. and, And often we are right. We've seen that, but have you ever seen a face that was literally shining with some kind of supernatural glory and manifestation of glory? No, none of us have seen that. And when the Israelites saw it, it frightened them. And and Larry was right in emphasizing. Moses didn't say, okay, you want a veil, I'll put it on. Listen to what God is saying to you. In essence, Moses said, I'm not putting the veil back on until you hear what God said. This is what God said. And they listened to it as they looked upon a supernaturally shining face. Listen, dear people, they saw some glory, but they didn't really see any glory, did they? That's that's what we're quite capable of. We're capable of seeing glory and not seeing glory at the same time. The glory we see is not glorious. We're not captivated by it. We're not entranced by it. We're not fixated upon it. We're not addicted to it. We see it and we forget about it. And when you read the things that the Israelites saw, they saw glory after glory after glory after glory. I preached a few weeks ago about grumbling. And that was one of the amazing things. They had seen God's glorious deliverances again and again and again and they still grumbled. 
And by the way, thank you for the encouragement because I don't know when I've received as much encouragement about <laughs> two sermons than I have on those two. That I thank you for your humility. And many of you came and said, I needed that. But you see, the Israelites saw glory, but they didn't see glory. And I'm saying to you, you can see some glory and not really see it and take comfort in what you think you see. But you'll never ever really see the glory of the gospel of Christ unless God shines in your heart. Unless he says, let there be light. And so our happy consolation by grace is simply this as as believers. God has shined. Blindness has been overcome. Light has been given. Glory has been seen. And now we have faith and we are no longer unbelievers. So there it is. That's how we've come, the light of the world. We who were once in darkness now see light and have become light because God has shined in our hearts. Now, I just want to conclude with some applications, a few for you uh, and those of us who are Christians and just a few for the unbelievers. Three things for those of us who are believers. The first one I just want to pose in the form of a question. If you have come to see the light of the gospel, how do you explain that experience? Did you initiate that process? And you're saying, of course not. You've just explained what happened. It was a sovereign initiative on the part of God. It's amazing grace. How do you explain the fact that you saw beauty in Christ and your friends haven't seen it yet? Is it you? Is it your brain? Is it your intellect? It's grace. And we we don't know how to explain that except to say it's grace. God shined in my heart. I don't know why He shined in my heart. But I know this, that if He hadn't shined in my heart and overcome the power of the devil, I would still be blind to the glory. But I'm not. And so, the recognition of this dear people is a call to humility. It's a profound call to humility. That we have come to see what we could never have seen were it not for God. That's the only answer. The second thing, I would remind you of this. If He who is the light of the world has shined in our hearts and given us what He calls in John 8, verse 12, I believe, the light of life, the light of life. I am the light of the world and He who believes upon Me has the light of life. If this is our experience, then He has indeed made us to be the light of the world. And I come back to Mark's burden for us last Lord's Day. If that's the case, then we must be shining. And we shouldn't just shine passively. Well, I hope my life is a bright witness. Well, I hope it is too. And that's okay to hope that when you're not even thinking about it, people are looking at you and saying, wow, she's different. He's different, isn't he? wonder what it is. That's great. But Mark's burden was that we go beyond that and that we let it shine, that we want to get it out, that we want to disseminate the darkness, that we want to come into contact with the darkness, that we seek to create discussions 
that we direct the conversation, that we do things intentionally and deliberately that will let the light of our transformed lives shine so that the world will see our good deeds motivated by God's grace and someday glorify God. We have to become more intentional, dear people. And that, I think, was part of the burden of Pastor Steve Hartland's message when he preached to us a few Sunday nights ago. We need to work hard at getting the light to the lost. And thirdly, for you believers, if our gospel is veiled to the perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded their minds, then doesn't it stand to reason that as our hearts are burdened for the perishing, that we need to pray, that we need to pray earnestly, that we need to pray vehemently, that we need to pray pathetically with pathos, that we need to be pleading with God to shine in the hearts of our lost loved ones? Isn't that a natural, practical application of this passage? We read the text, we say, okay, I see what the problem was by nature. The gospel is veiled, our minds are blinded, the devil is active, we see no beauty in Christ, we're unbelievers. But God, the Creator, God has this power that He chooses to exercise, wherein He actually comes to the benighted soul and says, in essence, devil, you're done with your blinding work. Let there be light. And He shines in our hearts. And He gives us this light. If we really believe that God does this, and that this is essential to salvation, and that no one will ever see the light unless He does do it, isn't it logical that we appeal to Him, that we plead with Him, that we beg Him to do this great work? Isn't this a way of giving honor and glory to God? When we say to God, God, I know that my dear loved one doesn't have the strength and the power to do this on their own. You must speak. You must create. You must say, let there be light. Oh God, please say, let there be light in the soul of so-and-so. And then when we give our testimonies, we give glory to God by speaking of that experience in that way. God shined in my heart. So, those are some applications. This is amazing grace. We need to be the light of the world and we need to pray that God would shine in the hearts of the unconverted. But just a word now for the unconverted before I completely conclude. The first application to you is this. Please, please see your true condition. I'm going to say it again. For you, the gospel is veiled. Your mind is blinded. Your heart is hardened. You are the object, not only of a fallen human nature, but of, divine, of supernatural demonic activity. I don't know how the devil blinds minds. I'm sure he uses television. I'm sure he uses this world, I'm sure he uses relationships. I'm sure he uses a thousand things. That's one reason why we gave over a small group to the study of overcoming temptation and examining the devices of the devil. But, but you know this, that he's working hard. He's working 24-7. It's not only God who never sleeps and slumbers. The devil never sleeps and slumbers. 
And he's constantly working on you and you need to see that you are perishing. It's not merely that you're going to perish. You are perishing. Right now, you're perishing. And your condition is horrible. You have never seen an all-captivating, all-entrancing, all-mesmerizing, all-addicting, all-transforming sight of Christ. Please see yourself realistically. Number two, if you haven't seen this beauty in Christ, know that you are the dupe of the devil. And I've said it already several times, but I'm just trying to make a different point right now. You think you're free. You think you see. You're bound and you're blind. And the devil, the devil is working you over big time. Big time. And he's got you blind. He's got you so blind that you think you see. That's his trick. But you're blind. And the third thing I want to say to you is that you haven't yet experienced the shining of God and you desperately need the shining of God in your heart. Now, I'm going to be careful how I say this. Listen to me carefully. There is a thing called preparationism, which is an unhealthy presentation of the gospel which suggests that you can prepare yourself for salvation. And we don't believe that. But I also want to suggest to you that if you understand this passage, it won't be wrong for you to say, God, shine in my heart. As long as you trust in Christ as best you can while you wait upon Him and look for Him to shine in your heart. You can't just say, shine in my heart, and you haven't shined, so it's your problem, the ball's in your court, I can't become a Christian. I'm not recommending that. I'm recommending that you exercise your faith in God by saying, God, save me! God, shine in my heart! God, help me to see beauty in Christ! But whether I feel it or sense it or not, I'm going to look to Him and Him alone. God will not be mad at you if you understand this passage and you ask Him to do what now you understand, at least viscerally and intellectually, that wow. That's one of the dangers. When we teach the truth of the Word of God, non-Christians begin to understand it. They say, well, at Heritage, they believe faith is a gift. Do we or do we not? Yes. At Heritage, they believe, according to the Reformed theology, which is biblical, that repentance is a gift. At Heritage, they believe that regeneration precedes conversion. That's true. But we don't recommend anybody sitting around waiting for the gift. We say exercise faith by asking for the gift and relying upon Christ whether you feel you've got the gift or not. And so I plead with you, I urge you who are unconverted to call upon this god who gives light to shine in your heart and trust the Lord Jesus. You see, this, that, in a sense, that's God's prerogative. I understand that. That's the divine sovereignty. You know, there are these mysteries. There's divine sovereignty and human responsibility, right? 
Hard to put them together, hard to fully reconcile them because we have fallen understandings and we can't fully reconcile them. But they're both true. And we don't reject one or the other because we can't fully reconcile. God is absolutely sovereign. God has to work. God is monergistic. That's just a big word, meaning he works on his own and he's not dependent upon us. He does what he needs to do and he doesn't wait upon us. He is not bound until we do something first. God acts independent of us. But when he acts independently of us, he energizes us and he changes us and he brings about effects. But whether we sense he's acting upon us or not, We have a responsibility. We have to believe. We have to believe. We have to repent. We have to trust. And I'll show you that in the very passage. And so you see how closely these things are are put together. Go back for just a moment uh, to verse 14 of chapter 3. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. That's Paul's way of saying to Jewish people, you will never ever see what the Old Testament was all about until you come to Christ. And when you trust in Christ, your Old Testament will suddenly come to life. That's what you need to do. And if that weren't clear enough, look at verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now when you get to chapter 4, it's clear that God has to shine in our hearts. That's divine sovereignty. But we're not responsible for God's divine sovereignty. We're responsible for our human responsibility. And verse 16 of chapter 3 says, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. (laughs) So what's your duty? What's my duty? Sit around and wait for God to shine? No. I must turn to the Lord. And when I turn to the Lord, the promise of His Word is the veil is removed. So, when you go out of these doors today, don't just go out saying, well, Pastor Ted taught that we all have a veil. And that we, the Gospel's veiled in a sense, and our own hearts are veiled, and our own minds are darkened, and, and only God can remove the veil. And so, I just hope maybe someday He will. No, you go out of these doors today, remembering that Pastor Ted also said, What Paul said, and that is, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When? When, Paul? When is the veil removed? When one turns to the Lord. And so, you who are unbelievers... Believe upon Christ. Turn to Him. Turn to the Lord. And say, Jesus, save me. You're my only hope. And He will. And the amazing thing is, the veil will be removed. And you will see beauty in Him like you've never seen before. And you'll be addicted. And you'll be addicted. And then, from that day forward, 
Not only will you see beauty in Christ, but people will see the beauty of Christ in you. And you will be the light of the world. And that's what you must do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great work of grace that you do. We acknowledge that the problem is not in the gospel, but it is in us and in our own blindness. But we do pray that you will overcome it. And we do pray that you will not let any of us hide behind your divine sovereignty and try to escape our human responsibility, but that all of us will see that we must turn to the Lord. And so please help us. We pray that today will be the day of salvation for some in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say one thing before Dave leads us. Um, Sometimes we sing a song that you may think is pretty shallow. I'll, I'll admit that when I first sang it, I thought, this seems a little shallow to me. Shine, Jesus, shine. Flow, river, flow. What's that about? Well, let me just put it like this. If Jesus is the light of the world, it's not a long step to ask Him to shine. And if indeed there is a river of salvation pictured beautifully in Ezekiel 47 that flows out of the temple of God, or as the psalmist said in Psalm 42, there is a river whose streams make happy the city of God. And that river goes out and flows and gets deeper and deeper. And the trees on either side of the river are filled with fruit. I don't think it's a terrible thing for us to ask that that river flow. So the next time you sing it, don't say, well, this is just a cheap little shallow ditty that doesn't have any substance. We are asking the light of the world to shine. We are asking Him to cause the river of His salvation to flow. Let us sing. I wish we had that in the song sheet. We do not. Turn the song sheet, please, to Psalm 62.